If you're here in person, please find a spot to sit. If you're at home, please find a spot to sit. If you're here as a guest or watching as a guest, my name is Mark Mullery. I get to serve as one of the elders in our church and get to bring a message to us from 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1. Just sort of forecasting where the sermons are going to go next Sunday, uh, April 25. We'll finish out 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll take a two-month break from 2 Corinthians, and we'll have a series for the, the, the new church, uh, the combined church, called Faithful Church. So that'll be May and June. And then in July and August, we'll come back and finish up 2 Corinthians 8 through 13. This morning, uh, Joanna Chandler is going to read the scripture for us. So thank you, Joanna. Please prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Thanks, Joanna. Let's pray. I'm going to pray from Psalm 119. Let your steadfast love come to us, O Lord, and your salvation according to your promise. We have sung of your promises, and now we're hearing of your promises. Come to us, save us, rescue us according to your promises. This is my comfort in my affliction. This is our comfort for those who are in affliction here this morning, O oh God, that your promise gives us life. Your life-giving word and promises are here before us this morning. Activate these things by the power of the Spirit in our hearts that we might have comfort in affliction, stability amidst storms, hope amidst discouragement, and desire to pursue knowing, serving, loving, and following you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Put your eyes back on chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This passage unfolds with a command at the beginning, a command at the end, and the basis for the commands in the middle. The first command, the first claim, the first call from God is this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you may have heard this verse used or may have even used this verse uh, yourself to uh, support the idea that Christians shouldn't be dating non-Christians. This is often where this verse pops up or sometimes people have applied this to uh, business partnerships, that Christians shouldn't maybe be in business partnerships with unbelievers. But I want to ask, is that what it means? Is that what it's here for? Well, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have yokes in your back of your pickup truck or in your garage or in 
We don't have a lot of yokes because yokes have to do with having animals that plow and pull things and not a lot of that going on around here in Fairfax County. So the idea is a yoke is a device that holds two animals together so that they can do some work together. Here's a, a picture of uh, oxen with a yoke. So it's got that, that cross piece with it and then the, the two sort of U-shaped things that hold the animals together. That's a yoke. So now the, the, the call here is to not be unequally yoked. What's that? Well, that's what it would look like if you had two different kinds of animals in a yoke. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience with farming, like none, but I, I'm kind of guessing that's not going to go well. I, I don't know, but I'm just guessing that's, that's not going to, like, I was thinking about dog sleds, you know, you got these husky teams doing the dog sled. Imagine you've got the, the husky on one side and a chihuahua next to it. It's just like, that's an unequal yoke. That's a mismatch. It's just not going to go well. It's not going to end well. And so the idea here is, okay, don't be unequally yoked. Don't be mismatched. But what I want you to hear in this is, this is a, a claim. This is a command that's being given to a church. This is a letter to a church. Church, don't be mismatched with unbelievers. Don't partner up with those who oppose God. And then there's this series of these five uh, rhetorical questions that, that just sort of hammer this home. Like, how could you even think of doing this? Can righteousness and lawlessness be partners? Like, can light and darkness have lunch together? Would Jesus go for a stroll with the devil? Belial is a, a seldom used word, but a, a, a word for the devil. Would Jesus go, go for a walk with the devil? Would you even think of bringing pagan idols into God's temple? May it never be. And, and if, if that can't be, then how could we, who now live for Christ, partner up with God's enemies? In other words, as much as we all like unity and talk about unity, some kinds of, uh, some expressions of unity are bad. Right? This is a unity, a partnership to, to, to avoid. Some disunity is actually good and right. Sometimes separation is necessary. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with this? Well, we can't understand what it means for us if we don't first get ourselves back into Corinth and understand what it meant for them. Because God gives his word in particular places and times, and then we bring it forward and appropriate it to, to apply it to ourselves. So... The context here is important. I want you to have your Bible open, and I want you to uh, look with me at what happens just before this passage and just after this passage, because often this passage sort of gets lifted out of context and just set by itself. But what happens before and after is notable. Look at, we looked at this last week. Look at chapter 6 and verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. And then verse 13, in return, widen your hearts also. Okay, so Paul's appealing to them to, in, a, in a relational way. My heart's open to you. Our hearts are open to you. Open your hearts to us. Now, look what happens right after this passage. Look at chapter 7 and verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. Hmm, that sound familiar? Okay, so right before he talks about this passage and right, right after, he says, make room in your hearts for us. Why? Why does he say, make room in your hearts for us, don't partner up with unbelievers, make room in your hearts for us? See, this passage 
especially this opening claim, isn't initially or primarily about marriage. It's about relationships and the church. It's about relationships in the church. Paul is appealing to them to stick with him, to open their hearts to him. Why? Because they've entered into relationships and partnerships with other people who are pulling them away from him and from the gospel. That's why he's so concerned about this. These are these super apostles that we'll meet in chapters 10 through 14. They're these slick, worldly wise leaders who actually, it turns out, aren't Christians at all. They preach a different Jesus and have a different gospel. But the church has welcomed these unbelieving leaders and all their worldly ways of thinking right into the middle of their church life. And as that's happening, Paul says, stop, wait, don't do that. Think about what's going on here, please, for your sake and Christ's sake and the sake of the gospel, you must reject these partnerships with these people, these worldly leaders. Stick with me so that I can help you stick with the gospel and with Christ. Now, there's the bridge from Corinth to Fairfax. Churches churches like ours, must not welcome into their midst leaders who are actually faulty and false Christians, unbelievers, when it's all said and done. Corinth wasn't the last time a church was seduced into welcoming worldly leaders into their midst. The danger is always there. Some things never change. There are today many worldly leaders with worldly ideas circulating, just like they were in the first century. And sometimes those people find their ways right into the middle of churches. So discernment is needed. Now, talking about people here, I want to make sure we don't take this the wrong direction. This doesn't mean we don't read books or articles or listen to speakers and sometimes need discernment to eat the meat and spit out the bones. And we, we don't disengage from all that's going on around us. This is about leaders. This passage is talking about the church welcoming ungodly leaders into their church. This is why we insist in our church on a church membership that's regenerate. Just being interested or growing up here or living in the vicinity. It, it what's required for membership, we want people who can make a believable profession of faith. And this is why we insist on elders, on leaders in our congregation who are godly, who are above reproach, who are gospel-centered men. I'm grateful for the group of men that I get to serve with in that way. And I'm excited that Justin and Edward and Tom from Sojourn are those kinds of leaders. I want to promise you this morning, in these times of uncertainty in so many churches and in what's going on in the church at large and in, in our country. I want to promise you this morning that your elders are 100% committed to being godly, scripture-informed people and to raising up and empowering only Christ-centered leaders. Scripture is our only authoritative standard for all that we think and say and do always has been, and by God's grace, it always will be. That's the plumb line for us. 
passages like this are so important. We refuse to swap the gospel for anything else, no matter how attractive it might be in the culture that we live in. Beloved, let us not be unequally yoked with unbelievers in our church. There's a claim. There's a, there's a command. Here's the why. Here's the why. For we are the temple of the living God. For we are the temple of the living God. Look with me, please, at verse 16. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? That's the fifth of those rhetorical questions. And then hear these words. For, that little word for is so important. When he writes that word for, he's saying, I'm going to give you the basis, the grounds, the reason for what I just told you. For we are the temple of the living God. What does it mean to tell a church, you are the temple of the living God? If I tell you this morning, church, you are the temple of the living God, what does that mean? Like, do you think about church life that way? That's, that's different for, than I usually think about church life. Like, like you know, do ever, people ever ask you, what kind of church do you attend? And tell, tell me a little bit about your, your, your church. And do you ever reply, oh yeah, our church is a temple of the living God. Like, I don't think I've ever said that. It doesn't. It's not sort of right there at the forefront of my thinking, but that's what God is telling us here. That's something that we need to know about our identity and who we are in Christ. In fact, I, want, I would argue that there are no more important words in this whole passage than these eight words. We are the temple of the living God. That's the foundation for everything that's going on in this passage. Four, here's the basis. Everything in this passage revolves around the, the, the sun, the center of gravity, that we as a congregation, the churches are the temple of the living God. Now, what does it mean? Let's just unpack this a little bit too. Think about the word temple. There's a Buddhist temple over there at the corner of our lot, right? There's a Sikh temple down the street. Sometimes uh, uh, Christian churches are identified you know, with the word temple. But if you think about the word temple, we even heard the language in the psalm this morning. You think about places where people go to pray and encounter God. There was a temple in Jerusalem, right? So you as the worshiper, you make your way to the temple in order to encounter God. Now, Paul explains what this means to be the temple of God by giving us a chain of citations from the Old Testament. If you look at your Bible, underneath verse 16, you will see a series of uh, uh, phrases that, are, that have cross-references. There's, there's one from Leviticus. There's one from Isaiah. Uh, there, there's one from uh, Exodus, one from 2 Samuel, one, another one from Isaiah, one from Hosea. He's pulling from all these different places in the Old Testament, and in that, I want to say to you that if you don't understand and read your Old Testament, you cannot understand Christianity. You can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Bible that the New Testament writers and believers used and explained their faith from. And that's what he's doing with this church here. And so the first thing he does is he says, he quotes God as God said, look at verse 16. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where does God say that? If you have a cross-reference, it's from Leviticus. Go back with me, please, to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. It's the third of the five books of the law in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, God is speaking to his people. They've been called out of Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness. 
and they're on their way to the promised land. God is talking to them about what it's going to be like to be in a relationship with him as, their, as, as the holy God. And I want you to see Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 12. Look at what it says. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Think about this. They've been rescued from Egypt. Why? To be delivered from slavery, that's a great thing, but that's not the only thing. They've been delivered from Egypt in order to come into a relationship with the living God. Again, you gotta know the storyline of the Bible. In, in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were in this intimate, close relationship with the holy God who was their creator and their maker. What happened? They rejected his loving kingship over their lives. And that rebellion, that sin created a, an alienation, a separation between them and God. What accord has righteousness God with lawlessness, Adam and Eve? So there was this separation. Now the story could have ended there. God could have just closed the book on the human race right there. But this God that we serve, this holy God, is a God who is not only holy, but he expresses that, that holiness in mercy and love. We'll sing, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. That's the kind of holy love that God has for his people. And so he has this plan then to draw together a new people to whom he will say, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. This means more than just ownership. This means presence. Listen, listen, hear these words from God. Hear these words. If you're in Israel, if you're, if you're in the wilderness, hear God speaking these words to you. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's you he's talking about. Think about this. This is, this is a flip on how we think about temples. Because when you think about a temple, you think about someplace that you go, right? The movement is the worshiper to the place where God is. But here, the movement is the opposite. Can you see who's moving to make this relationship happen? Who's doing the work? Who's coming and moving into the neighborhood? I will make my dwelling with you. I will walk among you. God is coming to be with his people. If you get that, it's a game changer. God is the initiator of rescue, of salvation, of relationship, and of having a people to be with him. Think about it this way. Let's think about like. Um, Imagine that you have a child with a, a rare and deadly disease and there's really only one doctor that you have to have to help your, your son. But that doctor, she lives in Phoenix. Will she even see you? She's super busy. Will the insurance cover? Can your son even make the trip out there? You're, you're trying to get in contact with this lady and hoping that this doctor could, could help you out. And one day you get a phone call and it's this doctor. And she says, hey, I heard about your son and I have an idea. What if I came to live with you? You have a guest room? Could I just come 
be part of your family. I'd love to just get to know you and, 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 and your son. And you know, we could have meals together and go for walks. And, and you're like, Mark, that doesn't happen. Right. And God says, I will make my dwelling with you. That happened. That's what makes God different than everybody else. Can you see it? It's a sea of tents out in the wilderness. And in the middle of it, there's one tent, a tabernacle. God says, I'm going to come be right in the middle where you are. The holy God comes to be with his people. And so they become a holy people, separated, set apart for him, not to be isolated from the world, but to be a witness to the world, something distinct and different from the world. Now, tragically, they, if you know the storyline, they didn't do that. They didn't want to be distinct. They didn't want to be separate. They wanted to actually live like the idolatrous people that they left in Egypt and moved toward in Canaan. And so God, in his fatherly love, he judged them and he sent them into exile, but he doesn't give up on them. And incredibly, he expands the promise even farther from I will dwell with you and you, I will be your God and you will be my people. Look at verse 18. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That's another quote from the Old Testament. Where's that one from? It's a quote from 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is a promise to David about what's going to happen with his line, his offspring. And the promise is chapter 7 and verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Listen to that. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Look at that. Now look at your Bible. I will be to you a father and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Hey, what's going on here? Paul's changing the Bible. What's he, like, how, how can he do that? He's misquoting 2 Samuel 7, 14. Is that fair? Like, does he get licensed to do that because he's Paul? But like, we can't, how can he think that way? It clearly, this is a reference to the coming Messiah. This is a reference to one offspring of David who will be on the throne and that throne will endure forever. That's one person. And now Paul says, that's all of us. How can that be? Here's how it can be. Because when that Messiah comes and his name is Jesus, he moves into our neighborhood. He tabernacles amongst us. He stands at the temple in Jerusalem. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. And when he dies and rises again, like we just celebrated at Easter, do you know what he does? Oh, this is so cool. He opens the way for that one son, him, to become the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And that good news spreads from Jerusalem all the way to Fairfax. And we have heard that good news and responded. And now we can call God Father and be sons and daughters with Christ, not only as our Lord, but also as our older brother. He makes a way for us into the family of God. Isn't Christianity awesome? 
I love being a Christian. I love following Jesus. And I love that Paul understands he's not changing scripture. He's identifying as how Jesus fulfills the possibility of people, outsiders, sinners like you and me, becoming sons and daughters, knowing God as Father. We are the temple of the living God. And we're the family of God, with God as our Father. So, I want to ask you, do you think of yourself that way? Do you think of life together in church like this? A place where God dwells. Sons and daughters of the Father. Do you see yourself, just slow down right here, do you see yourself as the kind of person that God would want to come and live with? Because if you're a Christian, that's exactly the kind of person you are. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's the invitation from God to you here today. Where are you in God's story? Do you see yourself in his temple? Do you see yourself in his family? Is your security anchored here? That anchor that Christ is that we sang about? God has made his home with you. And one day, he'll bring you home to be with him in the place that won't need a temple because God is the temple and will be with him forever. We are the temple of the living God. Wow. That changes everything. It really does. Implication. Let us then pursue holiness. Here's where the passage closes. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Look up just above there at verse 17. This is a quote from Isaiah. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Don't want us to misunderstand what's being said here. This means to live separately, distinctly, but not in isolation from the world, right? Live separately, but not secretly. Don't hide from the world, but live differently from the world. In fact, in a previous letter that he wrote to this church, he touched on this issue. He says in the first Corinthians five, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. And how can you be ambassadors for Christ if you go out of the world? So what we're talking about here isn't creating an insulated bubble. So we're never touching up against the world. What we're talking about here is living in the middle of the world distinctly and differently as God's holy people. So he says, let us cleanse ourselves from what is corrupt and polluted and pursue living as God's holy people. And so I want to urge you, 
throw yourself into living for him. If we've really become God's temple, then let us make a clean break with anyone and anything that compromises living as holy people, as a holy congregation. If Christ really became sin for us, chapter 5, verse 21, if Christ really became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, then let us run to the way of living that imitates and honors Christ, that lives righteously. So we need moments to just slow down in the midst of our lives and busy times. What makes us unclean? What corrupts? What draws us away from God? This would be the place to say, hey, don't date unbelievers. That would be an appropriate application to make right here. Don't be drawn away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So many other things we could say. But I want to highlight how he gets us here. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse one another. How do you pursue holiness? And do the promises of God help you as you do that? My observation is that many Christians fail right here. They jump over the promises. They forget their identity in Christ. They forget all that God has taken the initiative to do to move in with them. And they go right to the to-dos of the Christian life, right to living holy lives. And so the Christian life just becomes a checklist. It becomes an ever-increasing orientation around where are the lines and I want to make sure I'm coloring inside. And then when I color outside, what are the things I need to do to get back inside? And, and it becomes very horizontal and functional and often very joyless. But the order, oh, the order is so important and it's right here in front of us. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us pursue holiness. You can't pursue holiness without the promises. You've got to get the order right. It's justification, being in right standing with God through the finished work of Christ before sanctification, becoming like Christ in our character. It's being called holy by God in position and then becoming holy in our character. It's becoming who we are in Christ. It's promises first, then pursuing holiness next. So let's bring this to real life. Where are you struggling with sin right now? Where are you finding yourself struggling, unclean, dirty, corrupt? Where are the things that, that just seem to trip you up? Maybe you got mad at that person at work again this week, or maybe you looked at sexually provocative images on the internet, or maybe you cheated on a test, or maybe you had too much to drink, and you, you feel guilty about these things. You feel ashamed about these things. Maybe you came to church this morning just sort of as an act of faith, but you feel like God is so far from you. Beloved, lay hold of the promises. Can, can you see them? Look at your Bible. Put your eyes on verses 16 and 18. I want you to see the promises of God. Look for the I wills and the they shalls and the you shalls. Those are the promises. Look, he says, I will make my dwelling among them, among you. So I want to ask you, when you sin, if you have sinned recently, you're aware of that right now. Where is God right now? Did he move away? Did he change his address? He's provided atonement for sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. 
not most of it, not everything except that thing that you're struggling with right now, all of it. He paid it all so that he could keep his address with you forever. That is the promise. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wow. Not somebody else's God. Not the God of that person in your community group that you think is so much more spiritual than you are. Not the God of somebody sitting on the row near you. Your God. Is he still? Or did he disown you when you failed? In Christ, we've become God's people forever. The Father gave the people of God to the Son as a gift forever. And no one can snatch us out of his hand. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Is that still true? Those are the promises. Listen to this one. Look at verse 18. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Is there a promise in there? Could that help us when we sin? What does a wise and loving father do with a child who does something wrong? The next step isn't to court to disown the child. A wise and loving father doesn't beat that child, doesn't give the silent treatment to that child. The child's still his, of course. He's going to do everything he can to help that child turn around and go the right way. And if, a, if an earthly father would do that, how much more your heavenly father. Oh, beloved, lay a hold of the promises. It'll empower holiness like nothing else. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us pursue holiness. Isn't the Christian life great? Man, I love it. It all starts with God. It's all tied up in hope in God. The temple is, is not only the place that they were going to, but actually we see here the temple is the place where God comes to dwell with us, to make his home with us. We're the temple, not of some lifeless idol that has the power to do nothing. We're the temple of the living God. The God of life the God of eternal life, the God of abundant life. The Holy God has made people like us and churches like ours his holy home. And in response, how can we do anything but want to live in the beauty of holiness? Out of love and amazement for the grace that we've received.